This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Tonight I'll continue in the series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. And tonight begin a discussion of the fourth and the last of the foundations of mindfulness. That is contemplation of the Dhammas. As you know, the word Dhamma or Dharma in Sanskrit has a wide range of meanings depending on the context. So one of the meanings of the word dhamma is truth or law or the teachings of the Buddha or the general principles of the teachings of the Buddha or the particular elements of the mind and body. Each specific element is called a dhamma. Now in the Satipatthana Sutta, in this fourth foundation, mindfulness of Dhamma, it's often translated as mental objects or objects of mind. But this translation can be somewhat confusing because objects of mind have already been included in the first three foundations. The question is, what is the Buddha singling out in this fourth mindful abiding? In his book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, which we've been using a lot in these talks, the Venerable Analyo has a very lucid uh, and incisive analysis of what precisely is meant by this contemplation of Dhamma, of how this term is being used. And that is Dhamma as categories of phenomena, which highlight how the different elements of the mind are working, how they're functioning. So in this fourth foundation, we're really looking at the categories of phenomena. 
And so what's included in the text, in this fourth foundation, is mindfulness of the hindrances, mindfulness of the aggregates, of the sense spheres, of the elements, of the factors of awakening, of the Four Noble Truth. So all of these are the basic organizing principles the Buddha used in his 45 years of teaching. He organized his understanding in these general principles. There's a man named Michael Carithers who wrote about the forest monks of Sri Lanka. And he had a very good way of expressing the essence of what we do in this fourth mindful contemplation. He talked of how in this contemplation of the Dhammas, how propositions of doctrine, the teachings, are transmuted into direct perception. And when I read that, I thought, that really captured the essence of our practice as we contemplate these dhammas. We're taking the general principles of the teachings, we're taking the doctrine and transmute it, transmuting it into the di- direct perception of our experience. So instead of it being a philosophical analysis or a philosophical discussion, the Buddha is showing us here very directly how to investigate these truths, these guiding or general principles of phenomena, the categories of phenomena, of how we can investigate for ourselves so we experience the truth of them for ourselves. When I was in college, I was studying philosophy We studied a lot of both, mostly Western philosophy, but also a little bit of Eastern philosophy. But what was so ultimately frustrating for me, and I think it was the frustration that I was experiencing that pushed me first into the Peace Corps and then into my interest in Buddhism, was that there was no exploration at all of how the philosophies we were discussing and analyzing, how they applied to life, how we could actually experience them in our lives. So it all stayed very abstract, very theoretical. Coming to the teachings, teachings of the Buddha, it was so vitalizing to find here was a teaching that is meant to be applied, the whole point of it, is to be applied. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha is giving us quite explicit instructions about how to do it. So this is from the first lines of this section of the Sutta. And how bhikkhus, that's all of us, does one in regard to dhammas abide contemplating dhammas So he asks the question, how do we abide in dhammas, contemplating the dhammas? And he says, here in regard to dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances.
So why does he begin with the hindrances of all the principles, you know, and all the categories, all the many lists in the teachings? Why is it that he begins this foundation with the contemplation on the hindrances? Because when we're not mindful of the hindrances, they, as we know, envelop the mind. They obstruct and block it from developing concentration, from developing wise discernment. They hinder the arising of the awakening factors. They prevent the opening to the Four Noble Truths. So in order to proceed with any of the other contemplations in this foundation of mindfulness, we need to first address and learn to work with the different hindrances as they arise in the mind. The Buddha uses two quite well-known similes to describe how these hindrances impact the mind. You're probably familiar with both of them. The first of the similes describes how in different ways the hindrances obscure our perception of experience. So the example is given of a bowl filled with clear water, which is used uh, for the purpose of reflecting one's image. So this bowl of clear water is being used as a mirror. And it's said that sense desire is like pouring colored dye into the water. So it colors one's perception. It's like looking at the world through colored glasses. Everything becomes tinted by the color of the glasses and we're not seeing things accurately. Aversion is like when that water is brought to a boil. Likewise, we can't see clearly. When we're heated up with anger or aversion, the mind is in a state of turbulence. And that turbulence obscures clarity of vision. Sloth and torpor is said to be that bowl of water that's overgrown with algae. So it's a state of stagnation of mind. Restlessness and worry is like the water being windswept. And this is the mind Restlessness and worry, when it's tossed about, when it's filled with agitation, at that time also, it obscures our clear seeing. And doubt is like when the water is muddy and everything is obscured. You can see how these hindrances, as they operate in the mind, alter and condition our perception of what it is that's arising. The second simile the Buddha uses suggests the underlying emotional tone, both of being caught up in the hindrance, those times when we're enveloped by them, and also those times when we're free of them. And as we'll see later on in this discussion, it's equally important to understand the mind when it's filled with the hindrances 
and to understand the mind when it's free of them. So this is the simile he uses, and it's very uh, graphic in describing these states. This is also from a sutta, from the Middle End Sayings. The Buddha says, suppose someone were to take a loan and undertake business, and the business were to succeed so that they could repay all the money of the old loan, and there would remain enough extra to maintain a spouse. Then on considering this, they would be glad and full of joy. Or suppose someone was afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill, and their food would not agree with them, and their body had no strength. But later they would recover from the affliction, and their food would agree with them, and their body would regain strength. Then, on considering this, they would be glad and full of joy. Or suppose someone were imprisoned, but later they would be released from prison, safe and secure. On considering this, they would be glad and full of joy. Or suppose someone were a slave, not independent, but dependent on others, unable to go where they want. But later on, they would be released from slavery, independent of others, a freed person, able to go where they want. Then, on considering this, they would be glad and full of joy. Or suppose someone with wealth and property were to enter a perilous road across a desert, but later on they would cross over the desert, safe and secure, with no loss to their property. Then, on considering this, they would be glad and full of joy. So too, bhikkhus, when these five hindrances are unabandoned in oneself, a bhikkhu sees them respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison, slavery, and a dangerous road across a desert. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned in oneself, one sees that as freedom from debt, good health, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and a land of safety. I think it's helpful to reflect on these similes not as literary images, but as quite vivid pointers to how our minds actually are affected by the presence or absence of these states. So pay particular attention in times of transition. And noticing those moments when we have been caught up in one of the hindrances, in sensual desire or aversion or sloth or restlessness or doubt, Pay attention to those moments when we go from being lost in them to being free of them. And notice the difference. Be very mindful of the difference in the quality of your mind. I think right in that moment, we will begin to appreciate the meaning of these similes that the Buddha used. Often, though, these hindrances have become such a familiar part 
of our inner landscape, that we overlook or don't realize the impact they're having in our lives. They're like old friends. And because of this, we might lack a certain sense of urgency or ardency about working with them. So in this fourth foundation of mindfulness, and right at the beginning of it, the Buddha is reminding us that abandoning the hindrances are a necessary step on the path to awakening, the path to realization. The question is, how can we practice working to abandon the hindrances without suppression and without aversion and without self-judgment? So in the sutta, the Buddha outlines five basic steps in working with the hindrances in finding the middle way between indulging in them and suppression of them. So he charts the course for us. We'll begin to look at each of the five steps the Buddha mentions with regard to each of the hindrances, and tonight particularly with regard to sense desire, and how we can apply this uh, in our practice. So again, this is reading from the sutta. And how does one in regard to dhammas abide in contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances? So the first step, if sensual desire is present, one knows there is sensual desire in me. So this is the simple recognition of desire when it arises, when it's present in the mind. The first step is recognizing it. And as you know, we can experience sensual desire in a wide range of ways. Rarely, but powerfully, we can experience sensual desire in terms of an obsessive passion. You know, in so much of the great literature, both Eastern and Western, describes this state. You know, starting with the Iliad. You know, what was launched because of an obsessive passion? And all the way through to modern times, you know, in the stories of Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary and Remembrance of Things Past and so much of the great literature is about precisely this mind state, caught up in an obsessive passion for something or someone. There's the wanting and desire of addictive cravings, both the big ones and the small ones. Just all the little addictions uh, of our minds. So be helpful and, and essential to notice this when they arise. We experience sensual desire 
in our recurrent fantasies. It might be sexual fantasies, it might be food fantasies, it might be whatever. It could be any kind. You know, the mind has great, great range in this. It could just be passing whims of the moment. You know, we're just going along, and then all of a sudden there's just a sudden desire or wanting of something. Wanting to see or wanting a cup of tea. Could be the desire we have when we're indulging all our internal dramas and stories. Have you spent any time just lost in your own internal reveries and enjoying it? Where there's there's a desire, an enjoyment of that, which keeps them going. Desire comes in the form of expectation. Desire for something to happen. The in order to mind. I'm with this moment in order for something else to arise. That leaning forward. Obsessive passion. Recurrent fantasies. Addictive cravings. Small whims, expectations. All of these are manifestations of the wanting mind. And when we don't recognize when these desires are present, we're simply lost in its distracting energy, in its distorting energy. And yet when we are aware, when we're applying this first step of the instruction, When sensual desire is present, one knows sensual desire is present in me. As soon as we become aware, we apply this step. We are transmuting that desire into an element of our path to awakening. This is the first step, recognizing when it's present. The second step, the second instruction in the sutta, is to know when it's absent. If sensual desire is not present, one knows there is no sensual desire in me. So this is the conscious act of recognizing the absence of the hindrances. And here in particular, desire. This is recognizing what the Buddha called the luminous mind. That luminosity being the mind free of desire, free of craving, which he said is the basis for delight, for joy, for tranquility, for happiness, for concentration, for insight. It's worth noticing when sensual desire is absent because we're we're recognizing a particular quality of our minds at that time. And it's important not to gloss over this instruction, you know, with a simple pro forma recognition. Oh, the hindrances seem to be absent. Because the Buddha put this in, as obviously with all the teachings, for a very specific reason. It's actually to contemplate, to be mindful of the experience of the mind when it's free of these states. We want to recognize when we're free of it and to understand and to deeply 
realize, deeply experience what the mind is like when it's free of desire. When, in the words of the simile, you know, we're out of debt, in good health, out of prison, free from slavery, abiding in a safe place, that's what the mind is like. So if we don't gloss over those times, but recognize this is the mind free of sensual desire, we start to strengthen and develop a much greater sense of confidence and faith in the practice. Because it's based on our experience of the mind, our direct experience, rather than some belief or some hope of how it might be. So the first step in working with the hindrances, knowing when sensual desire is present, knowing when it's absent. The next three steps in the instruction emphasize one of the most important themes of the Buddhist teachings, and that is emphasizing the understanding of conditionality. So here the Buddha says, one knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of sensual desire can be avoided. So here we're mindful not only of the presence or absence of desire or the other hindrances, but also what conditions underlie the presence or absence. What are the conditioning factors? There are several ways of understanding what leads to the arising of sensual desire. Most obviously, and we work with this a lot in our practice, It arises when we're not being mindful of the arising sense object or the pleasant feeling associated with it. So when we're not mindful, whether seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling in the body, certain mind objects, when we're not mindful and not mindful of the pleasant feeling, then the habitual conditioning of desire and craving easily gets activated. A good place to watch this is in the dining room at mealtime. You know, even as you're kind of walking in very mindfully, but just notice what happens in the mind as you get closer to the food table. You know, and just, is there any kind of popping out of the eyes? You know, the, the awareness leaking out through the eye door, getting involved one way or another in one's likes and dislikes regarding food. Now, often there's some movement of the mind there. We can see the working of desire there when we're not mindful. And yet, as soon as we might note seeing, 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 the eyes recede back into the head. We settle back into ourselves. The mind stays receptive. And in that moment, we're free of desire. Well, notice what happens if 
you know, somebody appears at the forest refuge that you feel very attracted to. Now, when you're not mindful, you see this person, and it can trigger quite a run of the Vipassana romance tapes. It's very easy to spend time, to spend moments or hours or days just whiling away, you know, in these these thoughts and fantasies. And all of that came simply from not being mindful of seeing. The Buddha pointed out another way that conditions the arising of sensual desire. And it's a very significant instruction here. He says, bhikkhus, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. And then the mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So in this regard, we see the importance of knowing what kinds of thoughts are actually arising. And what kind of thought process are we practicing, knowingly or unknowingly? So we begin to notice and become conscious of the particular habit patterns of thought. That even though they may have been long established, they often go unnoticed. Here's the Buddha before his enlightenment. He said, bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, thoughts of non-cruelty of love and compassion. It's helpful to pay attention to the patterns of our thought so that we begin to see which are skillful thoughts, which are unskillful thoughts, because the more frequently we ponder them, the more frequently we think them, That's where the mind inclines. You know, there's a theory in modern biology, and it was expressed very well by the biologist Rupert Sheldrake, called morphic resonance. And it has many implications, but, but one of the principles of this is that once something arises in nature, even if it is the first time it's arisen, 
once a certain phenomena happens, it's much easier for that same phenomena to happen again. And so it was a, he expressed it, and these were his words. He said, habits, now talking about habits of mind, habits are subject to natural selection. The more often they're repeated, the more probable they become. So we have to see that we are reconditioning our minds with the repetition of particular kinds of thoughts, the particular kinds of actions. The more often they're repeated, the more probable they become. So this is the second way of understanding how thoughts of sensual desire arise. And it contains within it a certain implication of how we can practice. There's a third cause for the arising of sensual desire. And that is that we have a basic misperception of what brings us happiness. There's the basic misperception that sensual pleasures will in the end finally make us happy. So I came across this few lines from the book Anna Karenina. Those of you who have read it, uh, you'll know that Anna Karenina was this beautiful woman married to you know, a Russian aristocrat. And then she fell in love with, forget his title, his name was Vronsky. And he was sort of an officer in the army, very handsome, very dashing. And the book is about her abandoning you know, her life for this great love which ends quite disastrously. So this is a few lines from the book. Said Vronsky, this is the dashing military officer, Vronsky, meanwhile, in spite of the complete realization of what he had so long desired, namely his affair with Anna, was not perfectly happy. He soon felt that the realization of his desires gave him no more than a grain of sand out of the mountain of happiness he had expected. It showed him the mistake men make in picturing to themselves happiness as the realization of their desires. This is the basic misperception that most of the world Act on. We think the realization of our desires will bring us happiness. And so we keep feeding them and inclining our minds toward them and gratifying them. And of course, it never does. And obviously, we've all had this realization to a fairly substantial extent. 
because it what brings us to practice. But actualizing this understanding in our lives, particularly for us as lay people, is quite challenging. Here on retreats, we're living quite simple lives. We're living more like monastics. But in our lives, there is a constant bombardment of images and sounds and input urging us, encouraging us to seek delight in the vast array of sense pleasures. And I've seen so many ads in newspapers and magazines and on the internet, and the, the headline of the ad will be, increase your desire. You know, as if somehow that's a skillful thing to do. Oh, your desire is flagging. Well, take this and increase it. Now, the preponderance of this social conditioning, which is all around us, you know, it's, it's the milieu in which we live, makes it all the more important to practice our deepening understanding of this step of the Satipatthana Sutta, that is, to really deeply understand the conditions which give rise to sensual desire in the mind. What causes these unarisen desires to to arise? So that we can, at least to some extent, balance the social conditioning, the prevailing social conditioning, with some deeper wisdom. The Buddha before his enlightenment, he faced exactly the same situation. This is not new to us. So I want to read, this also is from one of the suttas in the Middle Lent sayings. He was talking to an Indian Brahmin named Magandiya. And so he said, so too Magandiya. Formerly when I lived the home life, I enjoyed myself provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasures that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. I had three palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the winter, and one for the summer. I lived in the rain's palace for the four months of the rainy season, enjoying myself with musicians who were all female, and I did not go down to the lower palace at all. On a later occasion, having understood as they actually are the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for these pleasures. I removed fever for sensual pleasures, and I abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace." I see other beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures being devoured by craving for them, burning with fever for them, indulging in sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is, Magandiya, a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, 
which surpasses divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. It's a powerful reminder that the possibilities of experience for us are vast. And mostly we're living in a very confined world of understanding what brings happiness. The Buddha is reminding us through his own life experience and what we can experience for ourselves that in terms of happiness and even in terms of pleasure, there are much more refined states to enjoy. So the next instruction in the sutta says, one knows how arisen sensual desire can be removed. It's not only knowing the cause of desires to arise, once they have arisen, the question is, what do we do? How can they be removed once they have arisen? There are many texts where Mara appears either to monks or nuns or to the Buddha himself. You know, he appears and it's often in the guise or in the disguise of a hindrance. But then Mara loses all his power in the moment of being recognized. You know, and often read in the text, Mara, I see you. And then Mara disappears, vanishes. In the moment of being mindful, that sensual desire has arisen in the mind. In that moment of mindfulness, we are no longer lost in it. We are no longer identified with it. We're no longer feeding it. In that moment of mindfulness, we begin to see its impermanent, its impersonal, its insubstantial nature. So it's important not to underestimate the power of mindfulness. And it's easy to do because in English, mindfulness is a very prosaic word. You know, it's not lofty sounding like wisdom. You know, we hear the word wisdom and we just, the mind expands. And it's not, doesn't have that heartful openness of words like love or compassion. You know, when we hear those words, it's like a direct connection to our hearts. We hear the word mindfulness. And as a word in English, it's just not terribly inspiring. What's your meditation practice? Oh, I practice mindfulness. Uh, There's a bit of a letdown. But when we look past the word to the quality itself, 
we see the enormous power of this mind state. The word really doesn't do it justice. The state of mindfulness, the state of awareness, is the root of everything that is wholesome. There's a wonderful, it's like an ode to mindfulness by the Dzogchen master, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. And it points to the fact that this quality is valued in all of the traditions. This is what he wrote. He said, mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. So how do we deal with sense desire, sensual desire, once it has already arisen? through the great power of mindfulness. Mara, I see you. And in that very moment, the power of that hindrance has dissolved. Sometimes, though, mindfulness may not be that strong in a particular moment. You know, and it feels like we're being overcome by the hindrance, overcome by desire. So a further way of working with it when it's already arisen is to employ some wise reflection. Although we don't emphasize it very much in the basic sequence of meditation instructions, the Buddha encouraged this quality of wise attention or mindful reflection as an important part of the practice. And I sometimes call it the, the inner dharma coach. You know, when we're caught up in something and the mindfulness is a little weak, we need to have this inner coach reminding us of what's possible. It helps us reflect on the Buddha's teachings in the very moment that they're applicable. So we're not thinking about some thing in the past, right in the moment when we need them, we actually reflect, okay, sensual desire has arisen. What is a wise reflection about it now? And so right from the Buddha's text, the Buddha's words, he gives us the wise reflection. This is from the same sutta when he was talking about his practice before his enlightenment. So as I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, 
a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. It leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. It's a very active engagement with this particular habit of mind, knowing that whatever we repeatedly think of, that's where the mind inclines. So we don't need to be passive. We don't need to be victimized by our minds. We need to recognize when it's present. If the power of mindfulness is strong enough in that very moment, it dissolves to the power of that mindfulness. If not, we call in this reflection, this reminder to ourselves. So the last of the instructions, first it's knowing when sensual desire is present, knowing when it's absent, knowing how it arises, knowing what to do if it has already arisen. And the last of the instructions is knowing how a future arising of sensual desire can be avoided. Of course, by knowing how they arise already, we can employ that same preventative measures. It's like taking care of our physical health. Knowing what causes certain diseases, so we avoid those causes, and we try to stay healthy. Can we take care of our mental health in just the same way? You're familiar with many of the suggestions the Buddha had in terms of preventing the inclination towards sense-desire, the proliferation of sense-desire. One suggestion was the reflection on the unattractive aspects of the body, which is a very un-American thing to do. It just flies in the face of all our cultural conditioning. You know, we focus so much on beauty and obsess on beauty and on youth. And anything that might indicate at all that we're aging, you know, or the body, the fact that the body will get sick or that the body will die, you know, as, as a society, as a culture, we just try to keep that out. We don't open to it. We don't reflect on it. There's a book in the library here, which at some point you might want to look at. It's called Body Worlds. And it's pictures of a very extraordinary exhibit. 
And just through a, through a, a new technique of preservation, the exhibit was of all the systems of the body, the skeletal system, the organs, the system of uh, veins and arteries, all the whole, the whole, all the systems of the body are the actual, the actual elements and organs, and they're preserved and stabilized in such a way so that, so that you can see them, you know, in various postures, all the musculature. So it's as if we're seeing the body just having taken off the nice little covering of skin. And these pictures and the exhibit must have been quite extraordinary in person. I mean, this, these were actual preserved bodies, but open, open to view. But the pictures are very vivid, the pictures of the exhibit. And it's both fascinating and, and this, to see the incredible complexity of what this body is. And even in a certain kind of way, we could see, you know, there might be a certain beauty to it, but it is certainly not provocative of lust. (laughs) If any of you (laughs) feel lustful when you're looking at these pictures, (laughs) I would like to know. And so it's a powerful reflection. It's like we get so caught up in the surface appearance. It's a powerful counterbalance to see, well, what is this body? What is it actually? And so I would, I would recommend that you look at this. It's a good counterbalance to all the other messages we get in our lives. You know, and then in other ways, the Buddha spoke of guarding the sense doors, moderation in food, association with wise friends, all as way, all as ways of avoiding the arising of the mind inclining to sense pleasures. So the beauty of this teaching in this fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the dhammas, starting with the hindrances and starting with sense desire as the first of the hindrances, that like any good physician, the Buddha leads us from the diagnosis, okay, what's the cause of it arising, to the cure, what do we do with it once it has arisen, to the prevention. And as it repeats in the, fra- in the refrain after each set of instructions, from practicing in this way, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this is the taste of freedom that comes from our practice, from this contemplation of the Dhamma. Let's sit for just a few minutes.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour.